Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy, and I am in Los Angeles, California. It is good to be with you. I hope you're doing all right. Thank you for listening. Today on the program, my guest is Kamon Felix, author of a new memoir called Discalculia, a love story of epic miscalculation. Right, like I didn't want this to be the kind of heartbreak narrative where the woman survives, right? Or like overcomes in this like really dramatic way. That's why I resisted writing a book where the character myself falls in love again with someone else or, you know, is saved from her heartbreak. Like all of that is cliche in a way that like I'm not interested in. But what I am interested in is the basic cliches of heartbreak that we don't get to talk about, which is the literal fact that it hurts and the fact that sometimes we bring it upon ourselves. Okay, that was Kamon Felix. Her new memoir is called Discalculia. It is available now from One World, an imprint over at Random House. Discalculia is a work of nonfiction literary collage in a mode not dissimilar to writers like Maggie Nelson and Sarah Manguso. This is a strikingly vulnerable and poetic examination of Kamon Felix's life, her relationships, it's about her relationship with her ex, with her family, and ultimately it's about her relationship with herself. Dyscalculia is 
a braided reflection on Camon's childhood, the abuse she suffered as a child, the associated trauma, her difficult mental health diagnoses, self-abuse, sexuality, early independence, and the long road that she has traveled in the direction of healing and love and self-acceptance. Discalculia is also, I think, very much a book about girlhood and about black girlhood in particular, black womanhood, and the messages around intimacy and relationships and pain and heartbreak and self-expression that are often communicated or not communicated to black girls and black women in our society. This is a book that has a beautiful, subversive heart, and it pushes back against some of these repressive tendencies. Camon Felix is a writer who is not afraid to say what too often goes unsaid. My conversation with her is coming up in just a bit. Today's episode is brought to you by Mariner Books, publisher of the novel Community Board by bestselling author Tara Conklin. It is due out on March 28th, 2023. It is imminent. We've all seen those ridiculous posts on neighborhood message boards, haven't we? People giving away free cans of tomato soup, people complaining about improper trash disposal, people complaining about each other's pets. You know what I'm talking about. In Tara Conklin's new novel, Community Board, this neighborhood message board is Darcy Clipper's greatest comfort. It is her lifeline. Darcy is in self-imposed solitude after her husband has left her for his skydiving instructor, and she is relying on her neighbor's posts for connection and company. So this is the new novel from the New York Times bestselling author of The Last Romantics. It was the inaugural read with Jenna Pick. Community Board is a wise, big-hearted novel about unplanned isolation and newly forged community, both online and IRL. That's Community Board by Tara Conklin, on sale March 28th from Mariner Books. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Every single episode of this program, more than 800 and counting, is available free of charge. There is no paywall on this program. Nobody likes paywalls. I don't like paywalls. I don't have a paywall on this show. So it's all there. I want it to be easily accessible for you guys. But what I am counting on is I am counting on people who listen regularly, people who love books and literary culture, people who get something from these conversations. If that describes you, I'm counting on you, hopefully, to support this show for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash otherpplpod. It's essentially a sliding scale. So $1 a month, $3, 5 10 20 whatever you can afford over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. As you move up the scale, you can get merchandise. A t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a book club subscription, and so on and so forth. So I hope you will consider supporting the show if you enjoy the show. If you would like to get some other people merchandise, a t-shirt, a sweatshirt, or a onesie for your newborn child, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. It's, uh, it's pretty self-explanatory. Just scroll down, look for the t-shirt, you'll see it. 
If you would like to sign up for the free once a week email newsletter that I do, you can sign up at otherppl.com or at my website, bradlisty.com. It's the same newsletter in either place. And it's pretty straightforward, this newsletter. It's once a week. It is essentially an enumerated list of links to things that I've been reading and finding enjoyable. So sign up for the newsletter if that sounds interesting. If you would be so kind, I would appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to this podcast. So Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever it is, give the show a rating. If it is possible to write a quick review, write a quick review. This really helps. It helps the show in the algorithm. It helps new listeners find it, if that makes sense. The Other People Podcast has a YouTube channel. Did you know that? The entire archive of this program is available on YouTube. You can watch these episodes on the YouTube channel. That's a relatively new development. You can watch my conversation with Kimon Felix. Just go to the YouTube website, go to the YouTube and uh, search for the show by name, Other PPL. And when you get there, hit the subscribe button. It's free. Likewise, you can watch video clips on the show's social media feeds, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. The handle on Twitter is at Other PPL. I post video clips. So that's nice. If you would like to email me, the email address for the program is letters at otherppl.com. And finally, I have a novel out. Did you know that? I wrote one. I wrote another one. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so I will read it to you if that sounds good. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So my guest, once again, is Kimon Felix, author of the new memoir, Dyscalculia, a love story of epic miscalculation. Kimon Felix is a poet and an essayist and the author of Build Yourself a Boat, which was longlisted for the National Book Award in Poetry. It was also shortlisted for the Penn Open Book Award and shortlisted for the Lambda Literary Award. Kimon's poetry has appeared in a variety of publications, including Freeman's, The Harvard Review, The New Yorker, Poetry Magazine, and elsewhere. Her essays have been featured in Vanity Fair, New York Magazine, Teen Vogue, and other publications. She is a contributing writer at The Cut, and I'm very happy to have had the chance to meet her and talk with her as she celebrates the publication of this new book. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Kimon Felix, and her memoir, One More Time, is called Dyscalculia. It's about the way that we, in our, in our daily lives, make calculations about our actions, make calculations about our feelings, and the miscalculations that we make in reaction to events, heartbreaks, things like that. It's about calculation, miscalculation, recalculating, and then ultimately seeing what all these calculations in your life add up to and, and what it says about who you are. Well, I'll tell you, after reading this book and knowing that I was going to be speaking with you, I think the thing that occurred to me over and over again is just, I was just wondering how you're doing. Like, this is a very raw mm -hmm. memoir. Like, how, how are you? Are you doing well? Yeah. I mean, I do as well as one can who is diagnosed with mental illnesses, but I'm 
I'm not any worse off from writing this book. I try to explain that I, uh, I'm not the kind of writer who writes from the wound. So I don't write in a therapeutic fashion. There are some, there are some times that where writing does become therapeutic for me, but that's not the intention. And so I wrote about this when I wrote about trauma for Lit Hub. Part of how a writer does their best work when writing about trauma is to not be in the trauma. You have to have some sort of distance from it. You have to be healed from it so that you're not re-traumatizing yourself or re-traumatizing your readers. So I'm okay, but thank you for asking. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I read, you know, like just so listeners understand, there's a, there's a heartbreak, there's a breakup at the... Maybe not at the exactly the center, but it's a it's a part of the book is you grappling with the intense emotional response within yourself over the loss of a relationship. Mm-hmm. It's also about trauma that you experienced as a child. That includes, as we were just saying, uh, mental health diagnoses and the difficulties of getting a proper diagnosis and proper treatment within our mental health care mm-hmm. system. It's about uh, sexual abuse that you suffered. It's about the difficulties that you experienced in your relationship with your parents, I think primarily related to this abuse trauma and the mental health diagnosis process, which put a Mm -hmm. strain on things and caused, I think, ruptures in terms of your ability to communicate well with one another. Mm -hmm. There was a suicide attempt Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a lot. And it's yeah, all, you hit the dyscalculia bingo. It's all there. And <laughs> I also read that, you know, you talk about uh, having to be healed or at least mostly healed from a trauma in order to see it clearly and write about it without re-traumatizing yourself. And I read that you did psilocybin therapy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I wrote a novel and the, that deals with me sort of self-administering psilocybin therapy mm-hmm. where I, you know, took mushrooms and basically cried for like three and a half hours alone in my garage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm curious to know about your experience. I think this is an increasingly common therapeutic modality, right? Where people are mm-hmm. taking psychedelics usually and advisedly under the, uh, you know, under the care of a, of a sitter at least, or some sort of mental mm-hmm. health professional. But I'm curious to know about your experience and what it yielded. I love psilocybin. I love mushrooms. I had done mushrooms sort of recreationally with my ex, actually, a couple of times prior to this. But treatment looks a little bit different than a, that at least for me, my treatment was a little bit different. It wasn't like a full dose and, and a trip and then kind of over, I took micro doses. So about a 10th of a, of a 10th of a dose, um, very, very, very small in small pill capsules. And the person who administered it to me was like a, a cultural witch doctor. She's from Colombia and, um, her family, and the people that she comes from had been involved in medicine work for a long time. And she was growing mushrooms in her home with her own hands and then grinding it up really, really small, putting it into little pill packets with other spices. And a friend 
who I had been buying my weed from, (laughs) saw me struggling. She would deliver weed to me and about once a week or once every two weeks. And inadvertently, we got into a conversation about things, about life. And I was really going through it. And she was like, you know, you should really try microdosing. I have a person for you. And so she connected me with her. And I remember the first time I went to her home, she gave me this offer where she was like, if you help me clean the mushroom tank um, and, and help me clean the mushrooms, I will give you some for free. And it was my first sign that this experience was going to be a lot more holistic and a lot more spiritual than I had anticipated. Uh, just because in that in that offer by itself, she was saying, you know, we are you are participating in your care. You're going to help me create these mushrooms and 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 build this care system for you and I'm going to make sure that you get it. Um we talked a really 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 long time. She gave me my dose and I I took the dose while I was still at her home. And when I walked out of her home on my way back to my home, I remember just feeling totally different than when I did a full trip. Like the lights as I was crossing the street were brighter and the air felt more pleasant. And for the first time, I felt like I could deal with what I was going through. And I remember going back to my apartment and crying because I felt joy for the first time in months since that breakup. And from there, I took it about every day, two doses a day. And it helped me drink less because I was, I was, Self-medicating with alcohol helped me smoke less cigarettes, which is not even something that I really enjoy doing, but was just part of my self-harm experience. And it really gave me space to think differently about the pain that I was feeling. So in that day when I walked from my from her home to my home and the street lights seemed to click differently and lights seemed to hit differently. I realized that I had something that I had things to live for that um, I hadn't seen, like the fact that the plants were greener than I realized and that I wanted to see them grow greener. And that's really what mushrooms and psilocybin did for me. It opened up my perspective and allowed me to think about my heartbreak from a lot of different angles and evaluate what my pain really was and where it was coming from. And I started writing dyscalculia while I was in that treatment. I did psilocybin treatment for about, I guess it was like a solid eight months or so. And being able to sit down, sit back, see the beauty in the world and see my own heartbreak and find beauty in it as well is what helped me kind of tease out all of these different metaphors that were coexisting as I thought about the story and what I wanted to say. It was really transformative for me. Isn't it incredible that these mushrooms that grow, they grow on cow shit essentially, or I I guess in in your tank. Or any shit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And they, they are these remarkable like creatures almost, you know, like what they, Mm -hmm. what they do and how, like the way that human beings, uh, respond to them, you know, the, some sort Mm -hmm. of like symbiotic relationship, clearly Mm -hmm. therapeutic. And I read that you, you said in an interview that you've done that, you know, you were going through a process of quote, self, both self accountability, but also self immolation. 
Mm-hmm. And the mushrooms helped with that. Yeah, I think that the mushrooms helped with the accountability. The immolation was going to happen anyway um, <laughs> because that's how I'm set up as an individual. But the psilocybin, the mushrooms helped with the accountability, right? And it was through accountability that I found some peace because at first when I was thinking about the breakup and thinking about the heartbreak and thinking about all the things that happened in my life, all of the traumas, it felt like these were all things that just kind of happened to me things that I was not in control of and that I didn't have any agency over. And the psilocybin helped me realize like, oh, I I absolutely have agency. And I've made some core critical choices that led all of us to where we are right now. By us, I mean my ex-partner and I, but also my family and my siblings and my mother and et cetera. And it made me feel... It didn't. It, I didn't feel shame when I came to that accountability. I felt peace because it meant that if we all participated, then I couldn't be the only one in pain <laughs> and I couldn't be the only one who had been harmed. And so sitting down to write this calculator was really me trying to take accountability and understand the kind of harm I'd caused and what that might look like from an honest perspective. Yeah, because this breakup that you're describing is not a one-way street. Mm-hmm. The infidelity, the mistreatment, the gaslighting, mm-hmm. it goes, mm-hmm. it cuts both ways, and you're really honest about sure. it, which I, mm-hmm. uh, I, I found um, moving and refreshing. And, uh, you know, I'm curious about the psilocybin therapy in terms of its psychoactivity. Like you say, you're microdosing, but in order to get a real shift in perspective, you have to be taking a decent amount, don't you? Or were you just taking tiny little bits and it was- No, I was taking tiny little bits on a daily basis, about twice a day. And that was it. It was just enough to alter my consciousness, just a slight bit. I mean, I was even working. I I was still working a full-time job then. And I was taking mushrooms while I was at work. And so it wasn't a significant, it, it didn't cause any kind of high- it just made me kind of take a breath, like a deep, deep inhale. I was like more aware of my body. And I'm generally speaking, I'm a pretty like, I guess one would say a deep thinker, though I'm not sure what that means, but I spend a lot of time in my head. So I was sort of like predisposed (laughs) for the kind of effect that psilocybin would have just based on being a really introspective person. And what about and the bi- what about I, I don't I don't mean to interrupt but the I feel like the the neurochemistry like the bipolar disorder maybe are there other drugs that you were taking that might have been interacting. I'm always curious because I I find that I'm very hypersensitive to anything. Mm-hmm. Like I'm such a lightweight. Mm-hmm. I can barely smoke <laughs> like one hit a pot and I'm just like flat. Yeah. And yeah. I I by contrast did mushrooms once, but I took a ton, like an unusually oh, high wow. dose. Yeah. So, I mean, I was, yeah. and I blindfolded myself. <laughs> wow. That's Which, a commitment. Yeah. So it was all, but it was, it was very interesting because there was no distraction or like, I didn't get mm-hmm. fixated on anything. It was all in right, right, behind, right, my, in behind my eyelids. Yeah. And so yeah. it was very, it was a very intense, but very concentrated and, you know, finite experience like of, mm-hmm. in one day. And I'm wondering about the 
discontinuation of the psilocybin therapy? Did you get what mm-hmm. you needed f- from it over those eight months? And then you just kind of decided on your own or in conjunction with your, what would you say, your, your, uh, psychedelic doula what do you call the colombian yeah yeah that's a great that's a great name i'm i moved and i didn't have access to her anymore uh, but i will say that after about 6 5 to 6 months i didn't feel like i needed them as much so i was already doing less psilocybin um and taking taking less doses and yeah i think that i did just come to a place where i felt prepared, I guess, to like face, to like talk to myself without needing my hand to be held by the psilocybin. And also life was just sort of like ticking off. I was moving to Boston relatively soon to join a campaign. And I just didn't want to kind of like be burdened with carrying psilocybin around. (laughs) So I just let it go. But at no point do I feel like, like at, at any time, if there are mushrooms available, like I'm, I'm microdosing whenever I can. Psilocybin is just, it. I don't think that there's like a cutoff point for when one is, is healed enough. There's like much more introspection that I know I could be doing. And if I ever find another doula, I will be, <laughs> I'll be going, undergoing another set of doses for sure. But but I feel I find that with psilocybin and psychedelics in general, it's not something that is addictive or no, you know, like you say, it kind of it almost kind of tells you when you're done, like you mm-hmm. don't need this anymore, mm-hmm. and it's easy mm-hmm. it's easy to put down. It's not like a cigarette or mm-hmm. alcohol or anything like that. It's sort yeah. of the opposite. Yeah. I haven't wanted to, I haven't wanted to do it since, but I, right. I'm not opposed. Yeah, exactly. You know? It's exactly that. It's like I don't think about it regularly as like, oh, this is something I really want to be doing or that's something that I miss. It's like when it's around and I can share it with another person, that's exciting because I can't wait to show them what psilocybin does. But for the most part, like I'm good. I got what I needed out of it. And yeah, I don't feel called to it right now. And when I do, I know it'll be there for me. I mean, literally it grows from shit. So right, it's somewhere at all times. Yeah. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Uh, how much of Discalcula did you write un- under the influence of these microdoses? Like how far into the draft were you by the time you discontinued usage? About halfway. I would say about halfway. It started off as a really long poem called How to Lose Your Girlfriend in 30 Parts. And before the poem was done, I realized it wasn't just a poem and that it was going to be a longer narrative. And so 
I wrote a good por- a, about the first half of that book while I was under the influence of psilocybin, and then the and then I I rewrote the book about ten times um, after that, and only the first draft was under the influence of psilocybin, but it was the foundational draft, really the draft that told me like which stories I was going to tell and and how they were all going to weave together. So you had a sense of a clear sense of direction mm-hmm. by the time you were done. Yeah. Taking the, the micro doses. Yeah. And you have said uh, in another interview that part of what helped you kind of regain your equilibrium following this breakup and as you uh, sort of assessed your like traumas in your past and Mm -hmm. just kind of got into the weeds, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of yourself and how you're wired, you, you mentioned your faiths plural Mm -hmm. as something that you leaned on a bit. And I just, I'm curious about the plural and what they are. Mm -hmm. So I was raised in the Jewish faith. I see that as uh, my relationship to the Jewish religion as a more cultural relationship. That's where my first understanding of community came from at the synagogue, my first understanding of what it means to to lean on people, to rely on your cult, spiritual faith and your spiritual environment to protect you. And so on a basic level, I went to synagogue a lot more with my mom after this breakup and as I was writing this book just to feel what it feels like to be around people who who know you and have known you since you were a child. And so in, in one way, that's how I leaned on Judaism. But I, really the faith, faiths that I'm talking about are the various faiths that correspond with my the spiritual religions that come from my family background. Um, I come from- Which Afro, is? I'm Afro-Caribbean. We come from enslaved people, mostly enslaved people who lived in the the smaller Antilles Islands owned by the British. So that's just Van Dyke, you know, St. Thomas, et cetera. So wait, uh, where does the Ju- where does the Judaism come into play? From my Afro-Caribbean background. So in in the smaller Antilles Islands, there's a huge, huge Jewish population. Oh. Um, I didn't know that, that most people don't know about. And that's in large part because there were Jews who owned slaves and in large part because there were Jewish migrant workers who came to the Caribbean right after slavery was abolished. And there were some consensual relationships, I assume. I assume that there must have been. Um, But there were also lots of non-consensual relationships as inherent to uh, slave master dynamic. And so I know that it stayed with my family for a really long time. My grandma practiced. Um, I remember when I was little, my mom and my aunt were relatively estranged. They just hadn't talked to each other in like 10 or 15 years. And we went to synagogue one day and she was there. She just happened to show up at the same synagogue that we had been going to for like five years. Um, And it turns out it was her synagogue too. She just hadn't been going there for a while. So it's like very steeped in my family. And for that, I have a lot of respect for the religion, a lot of respect for the stories that are told, the way that stories are told, and the way that Jewish people talk about resistance and resilience. That always has resonated with me. But the religions that I would say that I'm an active practitioner of are those African spiritual religions. And there are various ones and they all have 
different backgrounds and histories. I won't go into them now, but um, really they facilitate your ability to see your family and see your family line as the kind of, um, as champions for your life, the people who are, are dead. We make altars for them. We pray to them. We leave them food and water. And part of that is an understanding that your ancestors made a deal with the universe. There is something that they wanted to accomplish, something that they wanted to see. And every iteration of that person, which is, you know, genealogy, every iteration of that person is made to get that ancestor closer to fulfilling that dream. And so I understand that my ancestors' dreams for me and for us and my family is for us to not struggle in the way that they had struggled spiritually and and monetarily and in all the ways. So I say close to them. I have my candles and my altars and I listen closely and I recognize What do they say? What do they say? <laughs> uh lots of stuff. They just they they tell me how to organize myself. They tell me how to feel about things and help me work through things. So I can't talk about it too much because it's a closed religion and you're not really allowed to share it with people who are not part of it. But they they keep me in line the same way, you know, there are lots of people who say that they hear God or that they hear spirits. It's all a part of the same understanding that they know something that we don't and that anything that you might want or any decision that you make, they know more about whether or not that decision is good for you. So before I do anything, I consult with my with my counsel. I have a poem where I say my 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 counsel of conjurers and I, I talk to them. I'm ready to build an altar. <laughs> you this. should, you should. Your ancestors <laughs> want to talk to you too. Right. It feels like a lovely thing to do, you know, yeah. just to to pay homage. And like what's crazy to think about is that it's an infinite. Mm-hmm. It's an infinite line, right? It goes back. It's not unique to, I mean, there are so many cultures, so many religions that rely on ancestral relationships. I mean, there are so many Asian religions in particular. I guess they're not all specifically Asian, but that people on the continent of Asia celebrate where ancestors are a, a huge part of how people understand their spiritual relationships, you know? Totally, totally. So... Your book is unique in how deeply personal it is, mm-hmm. how unflinching it is in describing your own pain, mm-hmm. and how vulnerable it is. Mm-hmm. It is one of those books where it's it's sort of all there, and you didn't shy away. And I've read that you describe it as a very radical display of very intense, very raw emotion. Mm -hmm. And I know too that you were inspired by Bluettes, the Maggie Nelson Mm -hmm. book, Mm -hmm. which has inspired me and has inspired so many writers. Mm -hmm. It's a book that so many writers who work, especially in this kind of collage format Mm -hmm. where you're writing in short bursts and you're almost like, it's almost like assembling a puzzle, Mm -hmm. at least in my experience of trying to write it. But just like to hear you talk about how raw this book is and the decision that you made and maybe the courage that it took or not. Maybe there was no debate, inner debate at all, but it is a uniquely embracingly honest book. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, here's what I'll say. I think it makes me sad that it's a uniquely personal book. I think what I've noticed in having conversations about the book so far is that it feels that it feels unique and that people are surprised by the level of vulnerability that's that's in the book. To me, as I was writing it, I didn't think of it as particularly vulnerable. I thought of it as honest, for sure. And I thought of it as an honest account of an event that everyone experiences, but no one takes personally enough. What do you mean, like a breakup? Yeah, like a breakup, right? Like there are so few books that we have access to anyway that actually talk about the way that heartbreak affects an entire your entire life, the way that it affects the material of your life and the way that your the material of your life shows up in, in your reflection of this heartbreak. And so I don't necessarily think of it as raw. I think when I think of raw, I think of a book that maybe just sort of like came out or wasn't temp didn't ha- wasn't well tempered. It's not raw to me. It's really well baked, and it what's but it's emotional. It's emotionally raw. I think is maybe the. I mean, it's like it's a yeah. It's a I see how issue, people. I, mean, just, I see how people think think of it that way, and I don't reject that. I think that that is a fair way to read it. I think I question what we mean by raw. Like, does it mean that it was emotionally provocative, that it made people feel something? That makes sense to me because it is that. It is emotionally provocative. I am asking people to look at at my life, look at their own lives, and then ask themselves, what calculations have I made or mistakenly made that led me to hurt myself more than I meant to? When I wrote it, and when I rewrote it and then rewrote it again eight, eight more times, what I wanted to, to do was do for people, do for memoir what poetry does naturally, right? Which is that it forces you to consider new ideas and forces you to consider new ways of reading work. And I wanted people to consider that perhaps the way we think about heartbreak and read it is like too, too depersonalized. Like you need to come closer to your pain <laughs> to understand yourself. And, well, and to and to to transcend the pain and to transcend yeah, like the, it. Yeah, yeah. So, a couple things before we get too far downstream. Yeah. Like first of all, the comment that you made about feeling like, well, this is not raw; it's fully baked. Mm-hmm. Uh, that resonates with me because I think. When a book is on the shorter side, this is not mm-hmm. a super long book. I don't mm-hmm. know how many words it is, but it's about mm-hmm. 200 pages. Mm-hmm. About there can be, and and when it when it works in this fragmentary or collagey style, mm-hmm. I think sometimes that style can trick people into thinking that it either came out in a rush or that it was easy. Mm-hmm. It's really hard mm-hmm. to write, like uniquely hard for me to put together an absorbing and like coherent collage. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if that was the case for you. I imagine, I mean, yeah. take, like you said, you wrote you wrote eight versions of it or eight drafts yeah. of it. So it, it, it's hard to get it right and to keep the thing holding together and yeah. thematically consistent or, you know, making sure that it moves through its paces and brings the reader along. 
you know, cause it can be, I think it can be easy to maybe lose people or easier to lose people mm-hmm. in a book written in this manner. Totally. Because you're, you're jumping around a bit mm-hmm. and you're shifting tense, I think in the mm-hmm. third section of the book, you shift tense. So can you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah. About shifting tense or just about like what it takes to construct collage and that the latter, like the constructing collage, like maybe challenges that you came up against, like particular yeah. challenges and, and that sort of thing, just because a lot of my listeners are writers and probably yeah. would be interested to hear. Well, I'll say that being an avid reader of poetry, I think it was a little easier, just a, just a tad. And um, really what I did is in the first like two drafts, I just got it all out. Like every every texture that I thought was important, everything that I wanted to see in the book, I got it all out on the page. And then I rewrote it a couple of times to like dial the language up. Like first what I do when I'm writing memoirs, I write the line in plain speech. And then I go back, dial it up in the way that I'm trained poetically, which is to, you know, take clauses and make them metaphors right like things like that and and i should interject and say for yeah. people listening who have not read the book there is a very strong poetic voice and a, a yes. very strong poetic flair to your prose style yes and some people are not going to like that and that's totally okay um that was the trouble of calling it memoir but i'll i'll get back to that i dial the line up and then i go back and i kind of take all of the pages out lay them out. In this case, I didn't lay them out because there are too many of them and I didn't have enough square footage on my floor. But I put them in a couple of different binders and kind of almost almost like a card game, like taking a page out, putting a page in, seeing if the sequence worked a little bit better, kind of playing with sequence, rereading it, and then being like, ah, this place, this thing should go here. Or I forgot about this piece and, and how it goes here. Really just turned it gamified it turned it into like a, a a game experience and that made it the collaging anyway feel a lot more fun and a lot less intimidating it didn't really feel like I was writing a book as much as it felt like I was putting together a collection and then by the time I got done with putting together the collection that's when I went back and was like okay now it's time to plug the holes and sew up the seams Okay. And something that you uh, said, I believed, or I think something that you asked yourself mm-hmm. as you set about to write this book and you were reeling from this breakup and dealing with this difficult emotional stuff, is you said something along the lines of, what books can I read that will make me feel better mm-hmm. and mirror what I'm experiencing mm-hmm. written by black women? Mm-hmm. I want a book written by black women about heartbreak and about self-accountability. Mm-hmm. And there is, uh, in your view, a dearth of these kinds of books. There weren't, mm-hmm. a, there weren't a lot of options for yeah, you. Yeah, it's not to say that there are none, because that would be untrue. But there was, right. like you said, a dearth of options. And why do you think that is? Oh, um, well, I think that, well, first of all, Black women don't get a lot of space to write what they want to write anyway. There aren't as many Black women authors as there are authors of other more sort of 
dominant perspectives. Again, that's not to say that there aren't a lot. There just aren't as many. And so just based on that calculation, there's going to be less options for like what is seen as sellable for us. And most publishing companies and editors, they want to work with authors who they think will sell. And so they ask authors to write books that are recognizable on the market. And if a book a kind of book isn't recognizable on the market in this case, a book that is, like you said, kind of raw and honest and vulnerable and philosophical and theoretical and all that stuff. If that doesn't already exist, having been written by a black woman, it's really hard to get those kinds of books to be bought in in the future. So I think, yeah, I think it, it the the answer is the answer to a lot of other things, right? It's just like, until Black women are given more space to write the things that they want to write and their ability to do so is not organized by whether or not what they want to write is marketable or has already been written, then there's going to be a lot more space for them to write what they want to write. Well, and also there's this cultural resistance or it's it's harder... I think you've said for black women to get to engage in what you call the cliche of heartbreak mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. to write about loss that isn't death, mm -hmm. but is nevertheless permanent and traumatic. Yeah. It's also about what we as a society and, and that doesn't exclude publishers, what they think the profound is. Right. And so for black women, right. What is understood as profound is our pain like that's the only thing that is understood as profound is is our pain and how we overcome it right but for other writers they get to write about all kinds of sh all kinds of stuff all kinds of shit things that aren't necessarily about them things that aren't necessarily about their pain and that's and those things are also seen as profound like it is profound for for you to write a book about getting your heart broken right it is cliche for someone else to do it and so i think shifting what we think of as profound and 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 not profound right like i didn't want this to be the kind of heartbreak narrative where where the woman like survives right or like overcomes in this like really dramatic way like that's why i resisted writing a book where the character myself falls in love again with someone else or you know is saved from her heartbreak like all of that it is it's cliche in a way that like I'm not interested in. But what I am interested in is the basic cliches of heartbreak that we don't get to talk about, which is the literal fact that it hurts and the fact that sometimes we bring it upon ourselves. That is so cliche that we don't even talk about it with each other, right? Like when I was going through my heartbreak, no one wanted to talk about me, the, the fact that I felt like I had contributed to it or that I had messed it up. Everyone was like, no, 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 it's not your fault. Just it's, it's him. Don't worry about it. And like, yeah, a lot of it was him. I say that in the book. Right. Um, but I really wanted to talk about how I could be accountable and it wasn't just so I could make him feel better. And so I don't know. Yeah. I just feel like what we are allowed to talk about, there has to be some kind of like savior present, right? Whether either that like we save ourselves by moving on to something bigger or better or greater 
something clearly identifiable as like a step above, or there's someone who comes in and saves us. And I just didn't, I didn't want to do any of that. I think that talking about heartbreak as it is, is good enough. It's so funny that you say that because I think as I was reading and I was getting into the back half of the book, I've been culturally conditioned to expect mm-hmm. like the the new love narrative mm-hmm. to sort of take over in the third act. And I was pleased that you didn't take that road because I was, I was mm-hmm. like, oh, you, you defied my expectations a bit. And mm-hmm. the other thing I really loved about this book is that in its unflinching way, it is so clear-eyed about how messy healing is. Mm-hmm. These healing narratives that we are often fed in the mainstream media and mm-hmm. by Hollywood movies and the like, mm-hmm. you know, these things are, are way too neat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He- healing from trauma is a messy process. It's so messy. So messy. Yeah. Yeah. And I think something else that I, uh, I read, I think, uh, that you said about this book and your aspirations for it is that you hope that it will help w- uh, black women to take their heartbreaks more seriously. Mm-hmm. And I found that to be striking. I think, to be honest with you, I think it could apply to any reader, but I get mm-hmm. why you would say black women in particular, because black women, like we've been talking about, are not typically permitted to engage with heartbreak cliches and to mm-hmm. emote and to, you know, kind of, there's, supposed to be, there's sort of this expectation placed upon black women to almost be stoic mm-hmm. in the face of loss and disappointment and mm-hmm. emotional pain. But I think as a culture in general, we tend to, I mean, I think men in particular tend to equate heartbreak and emotional and the resulting emotional pain as weakness. For sure. So there's the, there's this desire to sort of like brush it aside or not talk about it. Mm-hmm. And women may have different reasons for doing the same, or they may get mocked because they they do take it seriously. Mm-hmm. But I think the reason it registers so much is that I believe very deeply that you cannot transcend trauma and pain without looking at it very closely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think this kind of gets back to the conversation we were having at the outset about psilocybin therapy, mm-hmm. which causes people to take a look at themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's the that's the big benefit of it. But mm-hmm. I don't know, just I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about wanting people to take their heartbreaks more seriously. Yeah. I mean, this sort of ties into what we were just talking about, right? About the cliche. Because we think of heartbreak as cliche and because we understand that it happens to everyone, we are conditioned to move past it as quickly as possible. And anyone who isn't able to move past it is seen as like overly sensitive or or not moving on quickly enough or not understanding how life works. And I, what I found in my exploration of heartbreak is that heartbreak, how you experience heartbreak, what it does to you, the way that it makes you act, all of those things provide really critical information about who you are as a person and about what makes you, you. And I want people to take their heartbreak more seriously because I want them to take themselves more seriously. I want people to be able to see themselves. And this is one of the few sort of like equalizing events and almost everyone can say that they have been heartbroken in some way, shape or form. This is one of the few equalizing events in which everyone has the opportunity, the rare opportunity to actually see themselves clearly and do some self-evaluative work. You don't have to wait until death to do it. You don't have to wait until 
you're facing your own mortality to do it. And it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be big and drastic either. It can just be that it didn't work out, but how you're responding to it, what it makes you feel, what it makes you do, the way that you date, the kinds of patterns that show up in your life as you date, the kinds of people that you decide to date, the patterns that you find in 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 those decisions. All of that is really helpful in helping you to see yourself clearly. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy. But you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Well, why don't we have, now's as good a time as any to have you read just a bit from the book so that listeners can get an idea of your voice on the page and the ground, at least some of the ground that you're covering here. And if, if you could just introduce the bit that you're going to read briefly, just so we can kind of have some orientation, that would be great. Sure. Um, this is the moment where I realize that things in the relationship are going to be different and that I don't know how to handle it. <laughs> I so boom. The morning after his birthday, we lie lazy in the deep cusp of our bed, the sun's tender touch grazing the fur of our bodies. I reach over to check the time on his phone instead of mine, mostly because his was closest, mainly because a pesky impulse primed me to look and I get giddy in my ancestors' mischief. I press the phone's home button to illuminate the screen, and as if summoned, one lone text flashes white across the face. I'm so in love with you, baby. I wish you were with me last night instead of her. At first, I smile easy at the warmth of it. I love to know the one I love is loved, a natural symptom of narcissism or of gratitude. After a moment, a dawning flushes over me, the warm wisp of that easy morning suddenly plucked away, my pulse racing into disgust as I realize he lied realizing I knew exactly who she was, the memory of a girl he'd curiously and opaquely befriended just a few months before, projecting from my memory's drunk archives. On my birthday, she offered me a shot of a dry gin, the taste of her guilt like salt on my tongue. I had asked him. I had asked him then, and he had lied. Like an instant high, I feel myself losing sense of time, colors ringing in my ears, the sun brighter than ever before, I shake him awake, shaking him, shaking him. As he wakes, I see panic fill in on his brow. Who, he asks, what? I'm in love with you, babe, come on. Except the tether is missing from his eye, he's lying again, right to my face, his betrothed, his promised one. Breathing gets difficult then, and with all the ringing in my ears, thinking is an odd task. Something takes over and I lean into autopilot. Something takes over and I lean into my autopilot, calling her from his phone before I even know who I'm calling. She answers, and I demand precision. I want to know what. I want to know for how long. Okay, T, 
Apparently, he had been planning on leaving me. Apparently, she had been planning on waiting it out. That whole sad time, I had been planning on becoming his wife, so none of the data aligned, the margins too muddy to reconcile. There's silence. Then the crushing wail of a million mornings. Then a collapse. From a view above the room, I watch myself melt into a foolish rage as I'm being let in on a secret that had canceled me out, that made me the woman unwanted. All of a sudden, I am a child again, up in a flame I can't stop, an anger I can't manage. I wanted him, and I wanted him to be sorry, and I wanted to be a woman who could go glamorously unaffected by such blatant ignorance because how dare he eclipse me, make me ugly, how dare she even fucking breathe. I wanted her ruined, I wanted her flattened, and I wanted to fucking die. See, I can tell you're a poet by how good you are at reading. (laughs) 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 It's like good performance of your own work. It's like moving to to listen to. But I, I think the place that I would like to start, again, is with how honest you are. Yeah. On the page. And just that last line, like being honest about suicidal ideation and that suicidal impulse and suicide attempt. I have argued on this show over the years, over and over again, that I feel like it's something that does not get talked about enough because Mm -hmm. I think it's way more common to suicidally ideate. I think it's way more common to wrestle with those sorts of feelings, especially in low times for people. But there's a lot of shame usually associated with it and people don't share they keep Mm -hmm. it secret sometimes to their own detriment or even their own demise Mm -hmm. so i'm always relieved when someone's open about that because i Mm -hmm. think it it's kind of it's a kind of lifeline to other people Mm -hmm. and i think you either say in the book or you said in some press that you've done for the book uh, forgive me for getting my wires crossed but i think like you know through therapy and maybe through psilocybin uh, therapy you came to a point, as I think a lot of people do, when it comes to this stuff, of realizing that it wasn't that you wanted to die, it was that you didn't want to be in pain, mm-hmm. uh, in, or at least in so much pain. Mm-hmm. I'd just like to hear you talk about that a little bit more, the yeah. way that the way that it happens for you, because th- these things aren't isolated, I feel like. I think maybe certain people are wired to maybe do it more than others or life, Mm -hmm. life circumstances for some people are such that life is just harder emotionally and otherwise, Mm -hmm. but we endure. And it's, I think it's Mm -hmm. important that we endure. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just wondering where, like where you've come to with that. So I am predisposed to suicidal ideation as a bipolar person and also as an autistic person. And so I've I've wanted to kill myself many, many times, especially when I was a young person. That prefrontal cortex development is key to, to being less suicidal. And so since I, since my, I usually wind up experiencing ideation when I'm going through a big trauma. That's usually when it happens. And it's mainly because like you said, and and like I said before, I just don't. I'm real. I I know how much I don't want to be in pain, and I know that there are also side effects to me being in pain that I 
have less control over, especially with being bipolar and, and other things. Like me being really upset could result in a psychotic episode, which is incredibly scary and destructive. And sometimes it feels easier to not be alive than it does to deal with my many things. But I am engaged to someone that I really, really love. I have a career that I have dreamt of. I removed myself from a career that was causing me more harm. And I'm in therapy all the time and on meds. So I've essentially, what I've done is I've front-loaded my ideation (laughs) to the first half of my life. And of this half of my life, I'm focusing on actually building preventative measures and staying as healthy as possible, staying as present in my mind as possible. And that makes me feel a lot better about where I might end up and how ideation might affect me. And I think in general, it's hard for me to to like prescribe when it comes to mental health, but I think for anyone who is suffering and thinking about suicidal ideation, I would I just would implore them to catalog their lives. And that's a large part of what I did with this calculator. I basically just wrote down everything that has hurt me and everything that has made me see that the world is beautiful and not all of that stuff made it into the book. But in just making lists of what beauty means to me, I think I've kind of hacked ideation. And that's what I would recommend. It doesn't work that's for a good everyone. St- yeah. Well, but it's no, it's a, that's as good a strategy as any, right? I mean, it's it's like it's very easy, I think, in t- when times are difficult or dark, to lose sight of the things that are good. Mm-hmm. Like, I sometimes will just sit there and just be like, "Well, I can still see," or mm-hmm. "It's raining," you know. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. yeah, you could. I don't know. It sounds corny. Yeah, and also can, just like, it, what what are the things that exist that make you feel not so bad, right? Like going outside. It's nice outside. I, I feel slightly better. Cataloging that, that you feel slightly better, right? Is enough evidence to your mind that things can and will get better. Even if you don't feel good. Like when I'm in, uh, having a mental health crisis or when I'm just like in a bad place, sometimes it's the little things, right? Like taking a, a, a joint, smoking a joint, and being like, you know what? I still have weed. That's crazy. Like, still have weed. <laughs> Amazing. I'm going to survive. I, I know I'm going to get through this. Yeah. So there's also, uh, you also write about cutting, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as self-harm and something that I think you did in particular as a young person. Yeah. And I think in primarily in response to the sexual abuse trauma mm-hmm. that you endured. Mm-hmm. at the hands of a cousin mm-hmm. and that has curtailed i mean I, the, the cutting like that is something i don't oh, yeah. fully understand i don't fully understand like the the psychology it's a one cuts oneself 
in an effort to feel something like I, I wish I had a better understanding of. I don't know. I don't know that that is the complete story. I would say for people who are bipolar, for people who are autistic, cutting has different implications. So for me, it was less about wanting to feel something because I felt plenty. <laughs> it was more about trying to stabilize. Like it's just a, a self-regulation tool. Like, I feel completely out of control. I feel like I can't stop crying. I feel like I can't stop emoting. I need to. F- I need there to be a pause, right? And sometimes that like shock to your body is is enough of a regulating act that it for for my child self anyway. It was like literally me trying to stop crying because often I would be having these crises like before school, and I needed to like get it together so that I could take my sisters to school, get on the bus, and go myself. So it's not a thing that happens very much anymore. It pretty much only happens when I'm in some sort of crisis and I need to regulate myself. But I, as an adult who has resources and money, (laughs) have other ways to self-regulate. And so, you know, I could talk about this forever, but there's something to be said about how the kinds of self-care options that are allowed to us have a lot to do with our sociopolitical status and et cetera. I don't know that I would have been a cutter when I was a kid if I had other ways to deal with my pain, but who knows? That's a good point. And speaking of sociopolitical, before uh, we part company, I do want to talk about this other career that you alluded to <laughs> yeah. uh, a second ago. And you have worked extensively in politics mm-hmm. uh, as a speechwriter for Andrew Cuomo, the former governor of New York, and also, I believe, on Elizabeth Warren's campaign, and then also in comms or something, digital comms yeah. and strategy, like for a, uh, a contractor, right? Like a, a company for hire that politicians use. Yes, that's correct. I don't, okay. I don't claim Andrew Cuomo. So unfortunately, that has to remain in my bio, but I don't claim him. One. But but you did work for him. I did, unfortunately, but he never used any yeah. of my speeches because that's how that works. Uh, Yeah. You said, I I read an article about it and you said, my desk was close to his office. Mm -hmm. He loved to see me, Mm -hmm. but he didn't listen to a single word I ever said. Yeah. So he hired you as a, and and I think too, you said something about the way that, like the, the racist way that you were hired and then sort of shown off as a kind of virtue signal Mm -hmm. rather than asked to do the job for which you were nominally hired. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was very young, so an older me would have seen it coming and would have known, well, an older me wouldn't even, would have known who Andrew Cuomo was. Like, I didn't know really who he was. I knew that he was the governor of New York. And prior to that, I was an organizer and I really just wanted to figure out how state government worked because we were organizing on behalf of Trayvon Martin, organizing on behalf of other people who had been incarcerated in New York State for like stupid shit. And I wanted to understand how it worked. So the governor was hiring, and that seemed like a a good way to get in there. And then I learned who Andrew Cuomo was, because on the day that I walked in, the feds were walking out with boxes. And I was like, oh, that's what's up. What I learned there is that... And wait, wait, I got to stop you. The feds were walking out. This had something to do with uh, what was the scandal? Buffalo Billions. 
Okay, which was like a nursing home thing? Um, right? That's one of the things that came way after me. Um, this was oh, okay. basically they were being accused of stealing from state funds and using corruption as a way to redistribute state funds back to interest, uh, in, to private interests. Regular corruption okay. stuff. And again, I was really young then. I was like 22 years old. I didn't even understand how that corruption worked. Like I, I didn't understand it. But I get it now, and in retrospect, I wish someone would have told me, but that's, again, a different conversation for a different day. Sure. But what I learned that was most important to the rest of my career was that what makes a good speechwriter a good speechwriter, or any speechwriter a speechwriter, is that you bring your voice to your boss, and when you bring your voice, you bring your ethics, your principles, and you essentially are asking your boss to move just slightly closer to you, right? So that the two of you can agree on shared language. And Cuomo didn't use a single one of my speeches. And it was in large part because he could not come any closer to me. It was like not feasible based on who he was and what he had done. And so from then on, I knew better than to work with anyone who I was not like acutely aligned with. Or that I wasn't like at least ge- generally aligned with, because it's, like, it's interesting it's that a waste you and I, I, you know, I apologize for interrupting, but it's interesting that you say like your conception of the speechwriter role as trying to get your boss to move closer to you, and that you bring your voice mm-hmm. to the speech, mm-hmm. because I think in my mind anyway. Because I have thought about this a little bit, wondering about who are these speechwriters, you know, the president's <laughs> speechwriters. It's kind of a trope, right? Mm-hmm. It's usually some like earnest, like white dude from like the Ivy League, exactly. The, right? Usually. It's all these guys. Yeah. But I always imagine that these people become adept at learning the cadence of, say, Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. You know, like the speech patterns mm-hmm. and thought processes and his pet issues or things that he really responds to and that you would then craft your speeches Mm -hmm. toward that rather than making it a a personal thing. I mean, maybe it's a little bit of both, but I like the idea of if you're going to do it well, you actually have to feel it personally yourself, Mm -hmm. right? You have to bring yourself to it. Yeah. Your description or your understanding is like, that is like how you train speechwriters, right? Like that is how speechwriters on a base level get trained is that you understand that your job is to find and identify the voice of the principal and like manifest that voice over and over again through with different language and etc and that is where a speechwriter should start for sure but ultimately over time what you learn is that when you bring yourself and your own ideas to their voice right? It helps them push their voice further. And like, you don't hire a speechwriter unless, like truly hire a speechwriter, unless you want your voice to be doing different things. Andrew Cuomo hired new speechwriters because he wanted to sound more like his father, like Mario Cuomo, who is like the JFK of writing speeches in New York City. Mario Cuomo wrote those speeches himself, right? (laughs) You move, you hire a speechwriter because you want to move your voice in a certain, a particular direction. And you know you can't do that by yourself. And so a really good speechwriter recognizes that as an opportunity to push their principle 
in my case, further left. It's always to push them further left. And a speechwriter who is just there to collect the check is going to just learn their voice, reproduce the same things over and over again, and move on. Hmm. So do you still work in politics? No, I'm I'm not in politics for now. I I left just a couple of months ago. I've got some other work that I need to be doing and some stuff that I need to like atone for, <laughs> uh, for the time that I spent in politics. So it's a difficult game. And I'm imagining yeah. that it was like, a, it's the kind of thing that you get in there and you kind of see how the sausage is made. And a lot of maybe your ideals <laughs> yes, might take a, oh, yeah. take a hit. Right? Yes. Your ideals take a and, and it's less that your ideals take a hit and it's more that you take a hit. Right. And you take hit after hit after hit. At least in my case, it was like taking hit after hit after hit because I am not willing to put my ideals down and I'm not willing to compromise. So what does that mean? It means that I'm always in conflict. It means that I'm always up against an institution, always fighting with someone. The best job I had was working for Elizabeth Warren because I didn't have to fight. We didn't have to fight. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. I, I was going to ask you if, if in your work, you know, obviously Andrew Cuomo is like a, a prime example of like the creepy politician who's yeah. corrupt. But I'm wondering, are there, because there have to be, I, like I tell myself this because it's too depressing to think otherwise, but there are yeah. some people who are in it for in it for the right reasons yeah, and who are, are really fighting the good fight. And is Elizabeth Warren one of them? Please tell me she is. <laughs> yes. Elizabeth Warren she, is, is doing her best to fight the good fight and does a really good job at it. And I have a lot of respect for her. I think- my politics kind of what I want from electeds is like far more than what they are able to do. So that's a part of why I had to leave because like my expectations keep running up against these like very obvious limitations. And mm -hmm. Elizabeth Warren, like every other politician is limited by a history, a context, and a set of options that she doesn't get to edit, which means that she can only be, a clock can only be right twice a day. Yeah, I get that. I think like, I have friends who are very similar to you. Mm -hmm. I had conversations about this in the last like uh, presidential election mm -hmm. where I was like looking at the dynamics on the political left mm -hmm. and how there was a more vocal progressive left or democratic socialist left than mm -hmm. there had been in the, in my past anyway, mm -hmm. and how, what's the word intransigent or just unwilling to yield mm -hmm. that faction was. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know what? I think it's good. Mm -hmm. Like it's performing a very necessary evolutionary function. Mm -hmm. If I could put it that way on the political left, mm -hmm. like this faction might not get its way on everything all the time or on the timeline that it would prefer to get their, get its way. Mm -hmm. But by being intransigent and vocal and unyielding, it is bringing certain issues to the fore that otherwise wouldn't be there. And it is allowing politicians like Elizabeth Warren, who are in it for the right reasons and generally, I think, want to do right by people, mm -hmm. opportunities to move things forward, however incrementally. 
yeah they might not otherwise have do you know what i'm saying like it yes i mean this feels... is what like Franz fanon wrote about paulo freire like amy cesar right like this notion that the left and the people on the left particularly if you see yourself as like marxist or communist or etc that like part is of, that how you see yourself i don't feel the need to have a particular identity right now because I'm in a period of studying. But I will say that I come from an anti-empire and socialist background. That's where my family has been for generations. And I still stand very firmly in that tradition. So at most, I would consider myself a socialist, which I think is one of the, the most tame things that you can be as a leftist. Uh, which is not to say that socialism is like a tame th- set of th- thinking, but rather that like to be socialist requires, I think, like less reading than to be Marxist. And so I'm going to spend a lot more time reading than I am on titling myself because I think that's where we miss, you know what I'm saying? Like it's where you kind of get out of. But I, I, I think that like the role that we play is to move to is to make revolution irresistible and part of how you do that is by making it possible at every turn like you never there is never a government that comes into office in which you say this is enough it can never be enough not when there are people who are dying and helpless right and who are suffering under the weight of capitalism and colonialism and etc so that's that's where I stand, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And I know from having poked around a little bit that you're working on a new book. Mm-hmm. I believe the the title or the working title is Let the Poets Govern. Yeah, that's the working title. Which mm-hmm. I love it. Keep it. Thank I hope you. you keep it. Yeah, I'll I, try. I love that title. <laughs> uh, but where are you with that before we we say goodbye? I'm just curious to know where that where that is. Is it a book that is also in this collage? It's not going to be in collage style. It's going to be a little bit more linear. It's still memoir, but it's going to be memoir with, with a lot of like reflections on legislation, law, politics in general, government. So I'm, I'm talking about myself, but I'm really reflecting on what the world looks like after it ends and what it might look like to for the people, if they're going to be people who come next, to build upon what we establish and make it work better for for a diverse community. That's what I'm working on. Well, you're a poet. Mm-hmm. And the title of your next book, at least right now, is Let the Poets Govern. Mm-hmm. I have to ask you if you have plans to run for office. Would you like to break some news <laughs> and announce your candidacy? Or sure. Like I'm happy to. No, I refuse <laughs> to run for office. It'll never happen. And that's part of the reason why this is still a working title, because I don't want to confuse anybody. Really what I'm trying to say, and this I think will be clear when the book is written, is that for us to be governed healthily and safely is for us to be governed by the the politics of the the poetics of politics, right? By by good poetics, which we find in Franz Fanon and Amy Cesar and all of these people who we look to as revolutionaries. And that like what the poets have been saying about government and about empire and colonialism and all those things, that those 
those tales are the ones that we should be looking to, or those stories are the ones that we should be looking to, to have a, a true understanding of what it means to be alive today. And that like, if we look to them to govern us, to govern us through poetics, not necessarily like as our next governors, that we will have better systems of governance. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm on board. I've, cool. I've said something similar, but not as well. Yeah, and- cool. I think that's a that's a great impulse. I think, and it I think it's also, if I'm not mistaken, a sly allusion to something that Mario Cuomo yes uh, said that you know you what do you campaign in poetry and govern in, govern in, prose, in prose? Or, yeah, literally what saying, I'm saying is the opposite. Govern in poetry. Govern in poetry. Yeah, and and don't campaign at all. <laughs> fuck prose. <laughs> fuck prose. <laughs> no, not actually fuck prose. I love prose. I was gonna say. Yeah. Gonna no. Say, no. 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 Here, no. No. No offense to any prose writers. I love prose. That's pretty much what this calculator is. Just saying that, like, it, the metaphor for prose in politics is really like when they say like campaign in prose, or when they say like camp- campaign in politics, govern in prose. What they're really saying is like take all of the poetics out, right, and and govern in plain language, which is like not what prose writers do actually. And is not what any writer really truly does. It's a, a gross misunderstanding of how writers approach prose. So, all right. Well, I'm looking forward to that one, <laughs> and I'm very appreciative of the time that you've taken to talk with me. Congratulations on this book. Best of luck on the next one. Thank you. I wish you well, good health, and creativity, and a, a successful campaign at some point (laughs) (laughs) thank you thank you yeah okay you guys there we have it that was my conversation with Camone Felix author of the memoir Discalculia a love story of epic miscalculation it is available now wherever books are sold from one world you can find Camone Felix on the internet she is on Twitter at Camone she is also on Instagram One more time, her new book is called Discalculia. Go get your copy right away. Go get it right now. The Other People podcast is offered freely if you would like to support this show, if you had a good time and you would like to tip your server, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to get some Other People merchandise, a t-shirt, a sweatshirt, what have you, you can do that at the show's website, otherppl.com. If you would like to sign up for my email newsletter, it's free. Sign up at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. If you would be so kind, I would appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to this podcast, just a minute or two of your time, and it really helps. If you would like to watch the Other People podcast, the entire archive is on the Other People YouTube channel, or you can watch clips on social media, TikTok, Instagram, or Twitter, The handle on Twitter is at OtherPPL. Follow the show on social media for all the latest. If you would like to email me, the email address for the show is letters at OtherPPL.com. If you would like to read my novel, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. My latest novel, it's out there. It's a work of autofiction. It's moving. It'll make you cry. It'll make you laugh. I'll read it to you. I narrate the audiobook. Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So I think that does it for today. It was a great conversation. Another one is in the works. My guest in the next episode will be Jennifer Michael Hecht. She has a new book out 
called The Wonder Paradox, Embracing the Weirdness of Existence and the Poetry of Our Lives. That'll be coming up in just a few days, so stay tuned.